Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, we have Tom Luongo back on the podcast. Tom's appeared twice before. He runs the Gold, Goats, and Guns blog and hosts a podcast of the same name and specializes in geopolitical analysis and how that relates to financial markets and the global economy. And Tom has been working on a few theses that seem to be playing out. His analysis is very deep, very detailed, and very interesting. And that's why I wanted to have him back. So welcome back, Tom. Oh, good morning, Tom. How are you? It's great to be here. Thank you. In libertarian world, and even beyond that, for a long time, people have been predicting that the system that the world runs on of fiat currencies with the dollar as the world reserve is going to come to an end. And people have predicted that somewhat prematurely, probably including myself at some points. Guilty. Uh, but you see that we are coming to some kind of a reorganization. And first of all, can you give us the big picture of where you think we are since, let's say, 1970? What's going on in the world? And then we could talk about Ukraine, Russia, gold, oil, and all those things. Sure. The most important part to understand about August 15th, 1971, is that we decoupled the financial system completely from so people who do work in the real world to produce real things the money that represents their labor their time their opportunity was completely decoupled from that and it became a, a purely debt instrument which all debt carries an interest rate associated with it and that gold has the the opposite effect gold actually hold actually creates and holds value, whereas debt loses value over time. And so in order for debt to maintain its value, you have to pay the coupon. And that coupon payment, otherwise known as the VIG, let's just get, <laughs> let's just get this out in the open in Rothbardian terms, 
This is the VIG. I, I, I use this term all the time, and I actually get pushback from readers on my blog going, that's mafia shit. I'm like, yeah, it is, exactly. Like, no, really, it's mafia stuff. It's the VIG. They produce the money that we use to figure out how to organize our time and our capital and, and our, our entrepreneurial spirit and our innovation and all that locking and stuff about mixing our labor with the land and all that stuff. But they take a VIG off of every one of those transactions by having a debt-based monetary system that they get paid for creating the money, but they do no work. They provide nothing. They are literally economic overlords and we are their debt serfs, okay? And when you really stop to do the hard analysis about how much real wealth we generate, stripping out all of the, the nonsense, stripping out all the inflation and the money printing and everything else, human beings are about one to 2% efficient at accumulating capital on an annual basis. That is the sad, hard truth of the matter. Gary North did this analysis years ago, always, say, always asking the basic question. We were about 1% profitable up until about the early 1800s. Then we doubled to 2%. What happened? And then he actually challenged all of us, his students at the time, to come up with a, a decent thesis for it. I've had my, I've tried my hand at it for 15, 18 years now. And but let's say it's still 2%. They're taking six. And now today they're at zero bound or negative trying to incentivize us to not save in order to try and keep their system afloat. So this is where we are. This is why we're finally at that inflection point. The libertarians and the Austrians have always been right in theory as to where it was going. They just didn't have any idea about timing. And capital markets have become more and more sophisticated in order to you know, inflate another Ponzi scheme to help keep this thing uh, alive for as long as they have. And the main way they've done this, and Luke Roman very, very eloquently in a recent podcast on Palisades Gold Radio said, look, we had one of two choices in order to justify asset prices. We could either allow the price of gold to rise tremendously to adjust to the amount of money that's in the world, or we could, we could expand the supply of paper, futures contracts and whatnot, rehypothecated to keep the price of gold down and the current pricing regime stable. In very broad terms, that's what we've done. And, you know, everybody in the circle is going, it's insane that we have 250 ounces of, of con open interest versus every ounce on the COMEX vaults or the LBMA vaults. Yeah, because that's what the market wants for now. So at some point, that's, so at some point, that's the system that has to deflate. Because, and so that's the background. And so once we understand that basis, then everything else starts to make a lot more sense. So just wanted to get to that, to that point. I want to clarify a little bit of what you just said. So when you say they, of course, you mean the financial sector, but there, there is a legitimate reason to have a Wall Street to direct capital when it's an honest trading market. So is the problem, the, the monetary system, and the fact that it's unbacked by anything, allowing them to financialize, make derivatives and direct things in an unproductive direction. Is that a fair? Yeah, no, that's basically it. The problem is it's not the financial system. It's not the idea of commercial banking that's wrong. This is where they, these hardcore progressive commies like Elizabeth Warren and AFC, they're all that Occupy Wall Street crowd has been, have been, and like modern progressives, like the Jimmy Dore crowd. They just don't understand this, that there's a legitimate use for banking in this world, that there's a legitimate use for coordinating large amounts of people's capital under one rubric, i.e. one big locally invested in by the local bank 
representing the savings of you know 5,000 people to go build a bridge or go build a, a new power plant or whatever. That's legitimate use of, of banking. And the banks are supposed to be our the guys doing the due diligence as to whether or not this is a good investment or not, because we don't have the time for that. That's their comparative advantage, doing the due diligence as to whether it's a good investment. We are good at what we do, talking at the microphones, building, I say, making shoes, standing on the street corner, giving out you know, sexual favors to, to, to John's, but that's what people's comparative advantages, right? doesn't matter what it is. We can go through the whole Walter Block defending the undefendable thing. Like, seriously, like that's the world. And the banks have a legitimate interest in that. And regional banks still serve that purpose in the, even in the United States today. Okay. And they're a very powerful lobby, by the way, as much as the wall street of prime brokers and money center banks and primary dealers have all the, quote unquote, have all the power because they control the Fed. At the end of the day, if the regional banks all go belly up, there is no banking system and then there is no innovation. And then eventually the whole system collapses from the top down because JP Morgan can't be, can't figure out, doesn't have the, the staff to figure out whether or not they need a new water treatment plant in Boise. Like they, they don't have that staff. They don't have that possibility. They don't have the granular on the ground under, knowledge and understanding. They run into, as all central planning does, doesn't matter whether it's quote unquote free market or not. They all run into you know high logic knowledge problem, but they don't have enough specific knowledge to make the to to make a good decision, right? That's the one, that's the fatal conceit of all central planning. So nothing wrong with banks. What we have is a banking system in on Wall Street that is in league with the Fed and the Treasury Department and global interests around the world to bastardize the system such that they just take a they take a percentage of every transaction that we try to engage in every action we try to engage in in order to improve our lives they think they deserve a toll for that in the form of interest against the debt for the money they created because that's all they did they provided money they provided liquidity it's nonsense it's rent is what it is in economic terms it's unearned wealth they didn't work for it they didn't earn it they just stole it period and they drive the financial system like they stole it. And some of the things you hear from contrarians, I think are hyperbolic on purpose to exaggerate, to make my point. I'm thinking of Peter Schiff here when he says the whole economy is a bubble. And, and he doesn't mean that no productive work is going on, which is what you just said. But economics happens on the margins. So what has happened here is that, yes, the U.S. economy is still highly productive, it's not true that we don't manufacture anything here. I think there's still $6 trillion worth of things being manufactured. But number one, with as much as we produce, this system tends to get us out there living beyond even what we produce for an extended period of time. And also because the global economy has become so highly specialized that we have offloaded some of the lower functions of food, clothing, and shelter to other economies so we can build spaceships, so we can develop highly sophisticated medical technologies for the whole world market. Would you agree with that so far? Yeah, we have done that. And that's a function of this monetary system. The monetary system creates that and creates a positive feedback mechanism for that to occur because we export inflation and we import real goods from overseas. And so we keep the dollar purposefully weaker than it should be 
and then use it to, or no, stronger than it should be, and therefore keep other currencies weaker than they should be. And therefore, you know, lower the price of foreign labor to the point where we can we can run sweatshops in Vietnam to make three dollar T-shirts for Walmart when it should be cheaper to build the T-shirts here in using Georgia cotton and just build them in a plant in Atlanta. But no, we go all the way. We ship the cotton over to Vietnam and then we have a little and then we run the looms in 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 Ho Chi Minh City and then put them back on a boat and send them back over to Walmart. And that's somehow cheaper. That's how bad, the, the, that's how distorted the, the global market is. And it's all a function of our exporting inflation through the treasury, through the accumulation of treasury debt overseas and overseas central bank vaults. What's wrong with the U.S. economy because of everything you've just said and, and because of the distortion and the direction of capital and the direction of labor is we have far too many people employed in unproductive work, work that, but for our financial system, there would be no demand for, and not enough people in productive work to produce things that there's nothing wrong with making the t-shirts in China if we have something to offer of value and return to the people in China. But if all we're giving them is dollars and we're using the wealth that we import to employ people in the healthcare system who we've got too many people there, we've got too many people in education. Everywhere. No, look, the simple fact of the matter, I've been arguing for years and I argue this actually all the time, very subtly with my partner, Dexter White, who does not agree with me on some of this stuff, still thinks the American economy is far better than it actually is. I say, look, we have a $12 trillion economy or whatever it is, 10.9, whatever. How much of that is actually the result of financialization? How much of that is actually the result of people sitting around pushing money around? That's not value creation. Like I will put economies that actually produce things up against our economy every day of the week and say, okay, let's make this discussion du jour. Russia has a $1.75 trillion economy, not in purchasing power parity terms, mind you, but certainly in nominal dollars. And we have what, a 10.9 or $11 trillion economy. Do you really think the American economy is eight times that of the Russian economy in real goods terms? I don't think so. Maybe twice, maybe three times, maybe even four times, but not eight times. No way. Because once you normalize for the currency effects, once you normalize for how far the ruble goes to build things in within Russia versus how far the dollar goes to buy a hamburger at Wendy's. I mean, hamburgers at Wendy's are $12. Fast food is $12. I remember the last time I worked a corporate gig, I could get lunch for nine. That was including tip. Okay, let's stop and really think about it in those terms. And what you wind up with is this massive distortion about what we actually produce. We purport in kind of in IMF terms to have the world's most value added economy. I've looked at our economy in terms of quote unquote value add percentage. They, they publish these statistics and they still say we're the highest. We're not. You know why we're the highest? Because we charge massive amounts of money on services that nobody actually needs. We have a, the world's largest corporation on the planet is the U.S. government. It's 25% of our GDP. It spends $1.7 trillion more than it takes in. So let's lop $1.7 trillion of useless spending off the top of our GDP. Because that's just capital destruction. So our GDP isn't 10.9 trillion, it's actually 9.2 trillion at best. I'm not saying that we're not a tremendous economic power, but so much of that is built on the multiple of our ability to, to lever up debt and to lever up the dollar. And that's the issue. 
Now that gives you real command in the real world. Sure. Up until the point where they say, we don't want dollars anymore. And some of the signs you might see of this because of this financial system and the ability to do what you just said, we sent everybody to college for a whole generation. Now I've been calling people, including a local contractor that the family that owns its name is Mullen. (laughs) I can't get someone to come out and fix my porch because there's just nobody that will do a trade and trades are, you could become a business person in the trades and have a six figure high middle-class income. Nobody's doing that. Everybody went to college. That's a distortion. Oh, it's a massive distortion because we directed capital to it. Okay. So to wrap it up, we've been due for, as my wife would say, a sharp whack with the reality stick for quite a while. We thought it might be coming in 2019. We had the coronavirus. No, that was the extension plan. The extension plan. The corona apocalypse was a means by which to lever up the, all the central bank's balance sheets at the same time in order to force the Fed to bail out the entire world one last time. The Fed is, by the way, not doing it. The Fed is now saying that's enough. Now, the Fed may still be expanding its balance sheet in some ways, but the Fed is actually draining the world of dollar of overseas dollars. And it's doing it on purpose. Now, there's a lot of reasons. Now, this is technical and complicated and a lot of moving parts and will sound completely insane to those who just think that it is the bad guy. It's not all the time the bad guy. Bad guys have to be taken out in an order of operations. The, be- the Fed right now is actually, we have worse bad guys than the Fed, and, and those guys are attacking the Fed, and the Fed is now responding back to saying no. Okay, understand that the best way to put this is if someone's attacking, if you have two enemies and they're fighting each other, you're going to back the one that is going to, if they win, is going to actually help you. This is the whole Murray Rothbard tactical voting. Yeah, all voting stinks and the government's terrible, but he still voted for Pat Buchanan because Pat Buchanan was the best of a bad lot. In this case, think of the Fed the same way. The real evil in this world is the European Union. And the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum is, and the European Union and the IMF and and the BIS and all of those institutions are their their power center. And they're trying to take the power from everywhere else and collapse it into those institutions. So you do that by taking out the world's most important central bank. And you do it by undermining its credibility, undermining people's confidence in the currency that it produces, undermining the political system that undermines the currency that they produce. Okay, it's a systemic thing. And then even worse, undermine the military, which undermines the the ability of us to export our inflation, which allows the Fed to be the steward of the currency and blah, 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 blah. Moreover, if any of you in the audience listen to Jeff Snyder over at Alhambra Partners, you'll understand what I mean now by the euro dollar system. Okay, and I heartily recommend you listen to some of Jeff's podcast called Eurodollar University, because those are probably the best ways to get into his head on this. Don't read his writing. It's all inside baseball. I barely understand it. Jeff's a brilliant guy, but he's not a particularly great writer. And I've been saying this to him in podcasts for years, become a better writer. But he and Emil do a great podcast on this stuff to get Jeff to solidify his ideas in a publicly digestible way. That's outside of the inside baseball of being a, a 30 year market professional. So now you'll understand that the euro dollar system, which just is a misnomer because it really just means offshore dollars. Okay. But if you'll see it quoted around as euro dollars, because it started in Europe and then expanded, and then the system expanded around the world. And understand also that a lot of the European and city of London banks 
have a are are the most powerful players within this system. Okay, so they dominate the quote unquote euro dollar market. Now, Snyder's argument has been that the Fed has not been in charge of monetary policy for decades. That the euro dollar system actually has the ability to set monetary policy because European banks can hold dollars on their balance sheets as assets and then use that to issue loans to create more dollars. And that the Fed, that these European banks actually have more control over the number of dollars printed than the Fed does. And this is a system that was built over, and there was an inflection point, according to Jeff's work, there was an inflection point in the 70s, which is part of the reason why Nixon had to take us off the gold standard, blah, 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 blah. Now, understand that is the case. That's fact. This is not an opinion. Okay. European banks hold dollars on their balance sheet. Barclays has billions of dollars on their balance sheet. They can issue dollar-denominated loans at nine and then issue a couple of trillion dollars worth of debt or whatever it is. And now multiply that by every European bank and every Japanese bank and every Hong Kong bank and every Singaporean bank. And now you understand the, the size of the Fed's problem. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. You were called the answer, then you quietly saved the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, too crazy in the head. Let's unpack that just a little. The Fed is still the one that creates all the money. They don't create all the money. And so I'm saying they don't create all the money. That's a misnomer. They create some of the dollars. They create certainly all of the domestic dollars and the domestic credit, but they do not create the offshore dollar denominated credit. That's the point. That's what you have to wrap your head around. That's the Euro dollar conundrum. Okay. Now, once you understand that, once you accept that, It's not even understanding. Everybody can understand it. You have to accept that it's true. That's the hard part for most libertarians to understand because they all want to just believe Ron Paul and the Fed. Great branding about what's wrong with the system and strike the root and it's a root cause analysis type thing. And I don't just, and Ron was brilliant in popularizing this, but it's not a deep enough analysis, period. The euro dollar futures market is the the offshore dollar market and has been for years. Now, the key to understanding why they have such control over the Federal Federal Reserve is five letters, L-I-B-O-R, LIBOR. Up until 2017, LIBOR, all debt in the United States, mortgages, car loans, HELOCs, you name it, were all based on LIBOR in some way, manner, shape, or form. So if 
the Fed tries to raise interest rates and cut back the supply of dollars globally, LIBOR blows out because LIBOR is not a market rate. LIBOR is a rate set by the 18 European banks, only one of which is American, JP Morgan. And when the Fed stops, starts contracting the money supply globally, what happens to the sick men of Europe? Their overnight funding rates go ballistic. The demand for dollars goes ballistic. LIBOR blows out, and that sends debt yields over here screaming higher. So the Fed raises a quarter point here. LIBOR, the LIBOR curve shoots up by a point or two points, and all of a sudden, you're paying an extra two points on your variable rate mortgage, even though nothing has changed here. And so then the Fed is forced to reverse the rate hikes. And this is what we've seen over and over and over again. So why everybody says the Fed put is in place, the Fed will, this is why all these Austrians like Peter Schiff keep saying over and over again, because they, because Peter Schiff has not updated his model. And I know this for a fact, because he's been saying the same damn thing for 15 years. I met the man and he said the same thing to me in 2013 and he said to me in 2006. And I walked away and I'm like, dude, you're not getting that. I'm sorry. He's right in theory. He's not right in practice today because the because understand that there's something fundamentally different that has changed. And I use 2017, 2018 as the, the break point. It's also the point at which Jerome Powell was nominated to become Federal Reserve Chair. Do you think that guy's name just happened to that Donald Trump had that guy's name on his on his shortlist? No, that was handed to him by Wall Street. It was handed to him by the Federal Reserve. Why? In order to break the link between LIBOR and U.S. funding markets. And that break, and that break started on January 1st of this year. SOFR, the Secured Overnight Funding Rate, is the, replace, is the U.S. replacement for LIBOR. So let me just ask, up until this break happened, I mean, I think most people think of it as the interest rate is developed with the Fed at the center the banks lending to each other for their overnight Fed funds rate, a series of markups, add some risk for the commercial market. And that's how my mortgage rate got set at whatever. Domestically, that is correct. You get to LIBOR. And as long as there's no stress within the system, then LIBOR stays low. But when the Fed tries to pull back on the money printing and LIBOR blows out disproportionately, or even worse, the euro dollar futures curve blows out disproportionately to what the, what the Fed has done. And you'll note, since March 15th, the euro dollar futures curve has exploded to the downside. 25 basis points, and it's moved over a point. LIBOR hasn't moved very much, but the, law, but the LIBOR curve through time, the maturity curve, is steepening rapidly. Every day, it's going up another five basis points at the 12, the six, three, six, and 12 month. At the one month level, it's not really moving. Now, but let's get to understanding SOFR. What is SOFR? It is a domestic version of LIBOR that is, one, a market rate based on all the tra overnight transactions that occur within the U.S. regional banking system. It has nothing to do with Europe or Singapore or Hong Kong or China or anywhere else. It's just our domestic banks talking to each other. It's your money market fund. It's your money market bond fund. It's your mortgage. In 2017, 2018, so, 2017, SOFR became not law of the land, but it started to be phased in. And slowly it was phased in a stage roll-in to allow a stage rollout to see if it was working and if the market wanted it. Of course the market wanted it because LIBOR doesn't represent the U.S. market. 
So we got better granularity. We got better. We got a better market for the pricing of short-term overnight debt. And what a shock. Sofer took off like a shot. Oh, by the way, all the bad guys hated Sofer. Bernanke, Yellen, Geithner, Obama, all of them hated the idea of getting off a LIBOR. When all those people are against something, I'm for it. Done. It's, it's just that simple. Because you know why they're doing it. They're doing it because they actually represent foreign powers who have the whip hand over our financial system with the goal of slowly over the time, of slowly over time, destroying the U.S. financial system, period. And they've decapitated our government. They just put Joe Biden, the fungus, in, in charge. And these people haven't done one thing that is on Congress, on, the Cap- on Capitol Hill, the one thing that's been pro-American. It's all been pro-Davos. It's all been pro-European. And they're trying to get us into World War III with the Russians right now. So understand that SOFR is the breaking that link from between LIBOR and SOFR now gives the Fed the ability to raise interest rates and not necessarily stress our markets. Why? Because over these last four years, most of the debt of the United States, in the United States, most of your mortgages and and everything, if you've probably gotten letters from your bank saying we've readjusted this, blah, 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 they're all tied to SOFR now. They're not tied to LIBOR. There's only very little debt's actually tied to LIBOR. And no new debt issued in the United States is in 2022 is tied to LIBOR. It's all tied to SOFR. Okay? So LIBOR in the United States, done. It's over. So when the Fed started to drain the world of, of euro dollars over the summer, when they invited people to get five basis point carry on reverse repo contracts. Again, don't want to go any far deeper than this, but I think you and I talked about this in a previous in the previous time I was on. And I've done an extensive series of podcasts trying to explain this. My podcast episodes 75 through 77 are the key to understanding this. Okay. So homework, if you're interested, go listen to those podcasts and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Because I identified this the day Jay Powell raised the reverse repo rate by five basis points. And we saw a massive drop in the euro and a massive inflow into the reverse repo facility at the Fed. I knew something was up. Okay. It drained a tremendous amount of money out of Europe and global capital and immediately started the political operation to try and get rid of Powell at the Fed. Again, there's your data that says they don't like this. And they tried to get rid of Powell, they got rid of Kaplan, they got rid of Rosengren, they got rid of Carita, three of the biggest hawks, interest rate hawks on the Federal Reserve Board. They almost got Powell, they failed. And so now the Fed is mostly shored up against the political attack. And now they're free to do whatever they want. And you'll notice they came out with a 25 basis point hike and and, and an announcement saying at minimum 25 basis points for every meeting for the rest of the year. Less than a week later, as Joe Biden ratchets up the rhetoric about war with Russia, the Fed's, nope, how about 50 basis points in May? We might have to even go 75. Bullard's out there saying we should go to a point on May 4th, okay? This is very clear that there is an absolute fight going on between the Federal Reserve and and the White House. Now the White House came out yesterday with this e-cash idea, because now they want to do an end run around the Fed. And they want the U.S. Treasury Department to now issue all the digital script as opposed to the Fed doing it because they can't get control of the Fed. This is what this is the real fight. This is the real war. And now think about what the Russians did with gold. Before we get to the Russians real fast. So let's just say all that's true. And Powell is going to start raising rates aggressively. 
So one would think, okay, well, that's going to crash the market because all of that unproductive capital that's deployed is going to get destroyed. So why do you think that might not be the case? What do you see as far as your thesis where maybe the Dow goes up first before maybe something happening to it later? Oh, yeah, the dollar is definitely going up first. Because what I just described means that was the, the Powell raises interest rates here and we don't see financial stress in our markets here because the Fed has all the tools to provide all the liquidity it needs to the banking system domestically to keep the banks from blowing up, which it didn't have in 2008. It now has those tools and they've decoupled from Europe. Europe is done. I, I'm watching the markets this morning. The US 10 years not moving. We've got an, I, I, I even think that the United States, that the Fed doesn't care about, an, about a yield curve inversion or anything else. Everybody's out there screaming policy error about the Fed raising rates and there's going to be a yield curve inversion. That means there's going to be a recession and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you can't get around it. But the goal isn't that. The goal is surviving and destroying Europe because Europe needs to be destroyed because those people are commies and eugenicists that are running Europe. Okay, that's who they are. Openly communists and eugenicists. Go read Klaus Schwab's books. Go read the blog post over at the World Economic Forum. This is not hiding. It, they tell you what they're going to do and then very arrogantly try and go and do it and then tell you that it's going to be good for you. So I should eat paste and, and bugs because that's good for me. No, Klaus. Well, you still get to eat Swiss chocolate and steak. No, Klaus. Put the banana hammock on, back on and go and pick up the metal detector and go walk along the beach. Have a nice day. No, we're not doing it. So now, and this is exactly what the rest of the world is talking about now. So once you understand that's the situation, they can drain the euro dollar markets. They can now gain control, wrest control back of this euro dollar monster and collapse the entire system. And who's going to get crushed in this? Europe, because Europe is the sick man at the table. Europe is bankrupt. The ECB can't, doesn't have the tools that the Federal Reserve does. It is not constituted the same way. It does not have the ability to create unlimited amounts of elastic money to bail out, to keep the interbank markets liquid. All it can do is shuffle debt around on the individual central bank's balance sheets like deck chairs on the Titanic. Doesn't matter. There's an iceberg straight ahead. So once you dig into the details, you can then see that this is absolutely the inflection point because the cartel has broken. The cartel that built this system and outrageously benefited from it for Pick a time frame that matters to you, the last 50 years, 90 years, 300 years, whatever, depending on your focus here, depending on you know, how you look at this stuff. Does it start with the formation of the Bank of England in 1694? Does it start with World War I or the Club of Rome in 1850? It's any number of ways to look at this. But let's just look at the current monetary system post Bretton Woods, because that's really where this stuff really goes off the rails. And as far as I'm concerned, the last 75 years, post or 80 years post World War II, have been a big financial lie and being a big system in order to create the very conditions today to usher in the last severing of money from productive work to leave the colonialist powers of Europe in charge of a global monetary system that is unmoored from work that they can just charge whatever interest rate on your, your productive capacity they want. And if you get out of line, well, we'll just shut you off and we'll unperson you. That's the system they want. I'm sorry, but I'm not bowing down to a bunch of inbred Euro trash who, has, who feels entitled to run the world. 
Like when I think about Jacob Rothschild, I look at him, I go, he's Mr. Burns from the friggin' Simpsons. That's who we're supposed to be scared of? Really? Let me restate and tell me if I've got this, if I can uh, put it in one sentence. Jay Powell and Wall Street want the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s back, which is not necessarily good. No, not necessarily. I actually don't think that's the case. I think they actually want the early 80s back, like right after Volcker. And that's what they want back. But even then, they don't even want that back. They know that they can't have that. It's, it's we're far too long for we're too far along for that. We need fiscal management that goes back. We need fiscal discipline that goes back to before FDR. We need Calvin Coolidge and do nothing harding. And I think even the, the I think even Wall Street understands this at this point. I'm dead serious. They it, that's the only way they survive this. Because they don't want, they don't, we don't need to go back to that. They, Powell's already talking about the fact that we don't need to have world one, one reserve currency for the world. He said this at the Senate hearing two weeks ago. He understands that the world's reserve currency is an outrageous privilege that is actually destroying the United States. Trippin's paradox and all that. We have to export inflation and run a, run a trade deficit in order to liquefy the world with the world's reserve currency. He's not ready to like, you know, say, hey, let's go back to gold. But he's not too far off from saying, I'm going to add Bitcoin to the balance sheet, by the way. So stuff it, Peter Schiff. Okay. I don't want to keep you all day, but Russia, we just told Russia, well, you don't get to play in this wonderful system that we've just talked about for the last half hour. And Russia said, okay, now you can buy my oil and natural gas with rubles or gold or Bitcoin. What's the significance of that? And what does it do to the struggle that you just described? Everything. This is the money shot. We Austrians and libertarians have been waiting for the day that gold got remonetized. Well, it happened on Friday, but it happened in such a way that it's going to benefit the Russians first and then everybody else second. And it might not even benefit gold bugs in the short term. Notice the price of gold today is back below $1,900. Now, some of that could be timing with futures, uh, options on futures expiring today and all, but, right? But we're recording this on uh, the 29th. So let's look at the, let's revisit the gold price after the first week in April, okay? Just don't get, don't get too upset about this. What the Russians did was they set the price of gold. And I just wrote a big article on my blog. It was on Zero Hedge this morning called Got Gold for Rubles. The Russians just broke the, the, the back of the West. And I go through this mechanistically. What I'm going to say is the following. The Russians want the ruble re back at pre-war levels. Or if we're going to have the ruble at 90 to the dollar, then that means the gold price has to drop. One or the other. They've tied, excuse me, the price of gold to the price of the ruble, creating a price floor underneath it. That's a moving target based on the exchange rate of the dollar to the ruble to gold to Bitcoin, all this stuff. It's not, that's not what's important. What's important is that it creates an arbitrage opportunity. Because the... Russians have coupled that with a statement, all unfriendly countries, as they've defined them, and they've issued a list of unfriendly countries, legally, they must buy their gold, their exports, all exports, not just oil and gas, but all exports in rubles, gold, or gold, not even Bitcoin, not local currencies. Okay. You will pay us in rubles or gold, because what that does is that then enforces this quote-unquote peg between the ruble and gold. And it creates a natural structural positive incentive for either 
to, for people to buy their, either rubles when they're undervalued or gold when they're undervalued. But either way, capital will be drained out of the West and into the Russian central bank or into the Russian economy for their productive, for the, the things that they produce. That VIG that I talked about at the beginning of the show, which is why I set that up for the creation of new money, that VIG, gone. You need to buy, you no longer get to give us cheap, funny money that means nothing that you're going to default on, Europe, because we all know you're going to default on it because we just set up, because everybody's because everybody can see that you're going to default on it. You're telling everybody you're going to default on it. You don't get to buy our oil and our gas with rubles, with, with euros anymore. You buy with something that is a proxy for something that is hard to make. Now prove to us what your economy actually is. And again, going back to what we, you asked me earlier in the show, what's the real productive capacity of the United States economy? We're about to find out. We're about to find out how much of this is just financial financialization, how many of these jobs are useless, how many of these jobs are, are never coming back or whatever the typical talking point from these people are. We're going to find that out. And the money is going to flow to the, to the Russians. And if you don't want to buy, fine. Have fun living in the dark ages. Have fun figuring out how to live like a third world country with intermittent electricity supplies and no running water and all the other things that you need in order to run a modern economy. Because the French can't produce enough nuclear energy to power Europe. Okay. So that's where we are. And it's a collapsing. What it will do in the long run is it will collapse that leverage of the paper gold market. Remember at the beginning, I said, look, we had the choice of either letting gold rise in price or expand the supply of, of, of virtual gold. We chose the latter. And now, the Russians want physical gold for their oil. You got to go get physical gold. There ain't enough physical gold out there. So what has to happen? This number has, that pile of paper gold has to shrink, allowing the price to rise to offset demand for physical gold because more physical gold, because less physical gold will buy Russian oil at a higher price. So there's, this is the mechanism. It's in place now. And the Russians can enforce it because of their positive trade for surplus. The root, what will happen here is the ruble will, re, will, will reach a steady state versus gold. And then every time it strengthens a little bit beyond the price, the, the current gold, the, the, that ratio, that golden ratio, it will be to your benefit to buy gold to buy Russian oil, as opposed to buying rubles to buy Russian oil. And when it's above that level, they use rubles. And when it's below that level, they use gold. And that sets up a positive incentive, carry, uh, positive incentive trade for both assets relative to Russia's massive trade surplus, which they will then convert into actual, honest-to-God, real profit, as opposed to paper script, which can be canceled at a moment's notice because Ursula von der Leyen or Joe Biden got their nose in a snit because somebody said the wrong thing or moved tanks across the border into Ukraine, which is what they did when they seized $300 billion with the Russian foreign exchange assets. Well, that's a question because... I've heard a lot of people saying, why in the world would they leave those exposed like that? And I hate to indulge the 4D chess people, either for Putin or Trump or whomever, but is there any possibility that they wanted the whole world to see those assets seized and to no. underline that you can't trust these currencies? Yes and no. WTO rules state that the central that these that the the countries have to keep a certain amount of their trade you know, trade receipts in the hosted country in order to minim, in order to minimize currency arbitrage and all the rest of it 
So some of that had to stay out there. So about $100 billion of that money was actually just cash. The other $200 billion were actually interest rate swaps that were being used to liquefy the overnight European banking system, okay? They were a positive, the Russians were a positive force on stabilizing the European banks. And then we seized that money and they can't do that. They can't do those operations anymore, which makes the, that's saying, I'm going to bomb you. And then when, when you fire, the weapon blows up because <laughs> we sabotage the, we, we're going to fire, we're going to fire off a, a salvo from all the tanks, but we have the cheat codes to your tanks so that when you fire those weapons, the, 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 the guns all explode and you can't fire them again. It's that kind of thing. Okay. Or you have to move your tanks into this position in order to be able to fire on our targets. Great. When you do so, we've got landmines there. It's a counter move. It was already embedded. It was a counter weapon already embedded within the system. And every, and the, if you think that the dimwits who run the National Security Council and the State Department and Joe Biden understood any of this, you're out of your mind. They don't. The Federal Reserve made it abundantly clear we were not consulted on any of these sanctions. And we would have argued strenuously against them for these reasons. So yes and no, Tom. I do believe that the Russians left them out there in a certain way. I also believe that Elvira Navalina, the head of the Russian Central Bank, is IMF trained and IMF still sympathetic. And I do not consider her a Russian patriot. And I think that this was a means by which I think she begrudgingly does what Putin asks her to do. And he renominated her as head of the Russian Central Bank in order to leave her out to hang as to whether or not she was going to do what she was supposed to do. And if not, then he can send her to the gulag as well. <laughs> and finally, make the case domestically that we need to nationalize the Russian Central. I don't think for a moment that Putin has not thought all of these things through, because Putin is a very strategic thinker, not 4D chess, basic chess. When it's coming out of the mouth of a guy like Donald Trump, it's definitely 4D chess. When it's coming out of the mouth of somebody like Vladimir Putin, remember, PhD in economics, has a plan, read his thesis. You can find the executive summary of Putin's PhD thesis online. Hard to find the actual PhD thesis, but you can find it. And you'll see what his mindset is. So last thing, with this oil for gold, so I did this yesterday because I, I just think the prices have moved since then. But at one point, gold was at 1921. Oil was at $107 a barrel. So that tells me with a little simple division, I can get about 18 barrels of oil for an ounce of gold. And you've said that Putin is going to set that somewhere where you get 50 barrels of oil or something like that. That was what he did on Friday was to let the world down gently and say, look, we're going to do this and we're going to very slowly implement this system. Oh, by the way, check. Moves bishop to queen four or whatever. Check. Okay, now move. We can end this game and I can back that bishop off and take you back. If he had gone in my article, I said, if he had gone the other way around and done what I su suggested in a couple of articles ago and what Luke Roman originally popularized this idea. I had already been thinking in these terms as well, but Luke got, there, yeah, Luke out there. I love to give him credit for this because he's doing yeoman's work to try, trying to un, help everybody understand this stuff as well. I said, yeah, well, he's got 50 barrels to the ounce. He could have come out and said 8,000 rubles to the gram as opposed to 5,000. That would have implied a gold price of $2,600 an ounce. It would have done the same thing. And then you would have gotten 25 barrels to the ounce or 23 or whatever the number is, right? 
By doing that, you then create a massive run on physical gold. You drain the COMEX and the LBMA in an hour. Doesn't matter what the number is. They have to then settle all those contracts in cash and say the exchange is closed. What do you think the nickel market cock up on the LME was all about? You don't think that was another warning shot across the bow? We can do this in nickel, the Chinese said. We can do it in gold. So is it fair to say he's showing some restraint here? Oh, absolutely. He's again offering us a way to save face. and He's offering us an off-ramp. That's the way I look at it. Putin's done this many times. It's why he stopped the advance of the invasion. I know a lot of people will say that he's been forced to stop the advance of the invasion because he doesn't have he doesn't have the, the military prowess that we suppose that he did. I don't subscribe to that idea. I think that's a lot of wishful thinking on the parts of, I, I think it's a lot of wishful thinking. I think the Russians are holding back reserves, are holding back on their invasion of Ukraine in many ways. It's funny how he's portrayed because he's portrayed as this expansionist imperial thinker wants to rebuild the old Soviet Union and all this, or the Peter the Great's empire. But really, we've been in his face for this whole century, going back to the early 2000s, Georgia, Ukraine, and he showed 16 years of restraint or 18 on the military side. And now it seems like you said, here's some shots across the bow. Hey, everybody, let's just back off and be friends. And I think we're seeing from the Fed that they're trying to support this. I see a lack of commitment from the Pentagon for all of, if you look very carefully, you'll see that it's the State Department, CIA, MI6, National Security Council, and the White House pushing this. Nobody else. Everybody else is, dude, what are you doing? Even Macron in France. Now, Macron is about ready to go for re-election in a couple of weeks. So of course he's going to play that game, even though he's as one of the biggest architects of the lack of diplomacy, which, which led up to this moment as anybody else. So let's talk about what happens with Emmanuel Macron's position on this after he's reelected in France. We'll revisit that. But the, uh, the Pentagon, you don't see general standing behind Biden when he makes these announcements, do you? I don't. I see him standing up there by himself. Even the terrible Joint Chiefs of Staff, who are as political and handpicked by Obama as they could possibly get. So we have to hope that cooler heads probably prevail here. And that the thing that scares me is that with every one of these moves, it's putting the neocons in char- who are in charge of this policy, and by extension Davos, because they represent the international banking cartel and neocolonialists who've been thinking they run the world for the last 350 years are willing to risk nuclear war with the Russians in order to get this done. Now you got the question is every time Putin escalates this way, are they going to, and they think that they've got, they've got some kind of military advantage on the, because their thesis is we're going to sanction the Russians to the point where they will not be able to build the tanks they want, they have designed or build the planes or this, that, or anything else and structure and keep them from being able to do the things they need to do in order to keep this war running. And then we'll, and then we'll just bleed them white in Ukraine. And then eventually we'll be able to take Ukraine and then unbalance the, uh, the nuclear triad situation and go for a first strike on Russia. That's what the neocons want. Do you understand? Oh. It's that simple. That's what they want. They've wanted that for 25 years. They want their Yukos back. They want their Kremlin back. They had the Kremlin. They had control of the Kremlin when Yeltsin was in charge. And they want it back. 
because there's the only way they're going to beat the Chinese is to take away their, you know, their, their quote unquote, their gas station. I hate to quote John McCain, but, you know, and moment of silence for John McCain's brain tumor because <laughs> it only had one life to give for its country. But that's where we are. And that's what worries me more than anything else is that their end game is nukes because they've got all the, because the, between the Chinese, the Indians, the Russians, and the whole global South, they have all the financial tools to kill this system and the Fed. They have all the tools they need. Or to quote Zack Snyder's sucker punch, you have all the weapons you need. Now fight, right? That's it. And by the way, extended cut of sucker punch, never the theatrical cut, terrible movie. That's serious. Like this is the situation. And I can tell you that Putin knows exactly who he is and what he's willing. The question is, what is Biden going to be allowed to do? And that's going to come down to the command and control within the U.S. military. Spooks start civil wars, militaries end them. We have a civil war in the United States. Everything I've described today is basically setting the stage for what the real civil war in the United States looks like. It's between the White House and the Federal Reserve and Wall Street. And fair to say the White House, Davos, the State Department, that's the gang. Yeah, the White House works for Davos. And Davos's desire is to destroy the United States. Because how else is Europe going to survive? If that, if, uh, unless all the capital that's here flows back over there. Because otherwise, they just default on everything. And then no one will buy a thing from them for the next 100 years. And Europe will literally become a third world area overnight. So everybody in Germany listening to my voice, overthrow Olaf Scholz. Go put AFD in charge. Same thing in the Netherlands. Get rid of Mark Root. Get rid of Mario Draghi in Italy. Don't reelect Macron. Get rid of Boris Johnson in the UK. Put in Nigel Farage. Farage has his problems. He's not Johnson. So if we don't have a nuclear war and all this plays out, what do you think the world looks like on the other side if Russia is able to do what they want to do? And let's say Jay Powell is able to do what he wants to do. The, the big if is the second half, second half of this, because the resistance within the U.S. power structure to this is, going, is immense. And I don't have a good answer for you until after the midterms. I'm very worried about now in the midterms. Because the, it's clear that Davos and the Biden administration are going, are accelerating their plans to do as much damage as possible between now and then. So that even if the Democrats get wiped out in November, assuming there's even an election in November, there won't be any ability to do anything other than undo the damage they did for the first two years. That's how, that's the reality of the situation. So they're destroying supply chains around the world. They're destroying our ability to invest predictably in oil and gas or just like food, all of it. And I'm not even going to go off on the tangent of you know what I think is going on with the vaccines and anything else. And I'm going to keep all that to myself. But just at the big picture level, I'll give you two, I'll give you two scenarios and then we'll probably, and I'll let you chew on that. If the Republicans only win a 35 to 40 seat majority in the House, and one or two pick up one or two seats in the Senate. There will be no political momentum going into the second half of Biden's term to get rid of him, even though he needs to be gotten rid of. And every one of these people needs to be put in jail for being traitors. And I have no problem saying that. The Republicans win a 70 plus majority in the House, seat majority in the House, and a five seat majority in the Senate. Then Joe Biden will be impeached 
faster than Donald Trump will become Speaker of the House. And I'm not kidding because Mitch McConnell will be on his back foot. Kevin McCarthy will be on his back foot and they'll all be exposed because the political momentum from the people will be so strong. They will not be able to hold the line. Pelosi will have a heart attack or just resign in disgrace. Okay, the 70 seat majority in the House, even if it's not Trump, that was my idea two years ago. I said the day after Biden got elected, I said, Trump is going to go for speak. Trump should go for speaker of the House. He shouldn't run for president. again. I, I wrote an article about this and, and seeded it into the world in February of 20, uh, 2020. And it was picked up by Trump in a, a speech in March. He said, no, I don't want to be speaker of the House. Like, you know, this shit went from my ears to zero hedge to Donald Trump because someone reads because someone on Trump's staff actually reads zero hedge. So, again, not patting myself on the back or anything. I'm just saying, like, it's it's the obvious play, right? That would be hilarious. But with 70 seats and five in the Senate, you will have an impeachable majority in the Senate because you it will not be hard for 11 squishy senators, nominally Democrats at that point to go, oh, my God, if I don't vote for this, I'm out. I'm going to get killed in 2024. Like, I'm not safe, okay? So I I want you to understand that all the dynamics change. If you get 70 fire-breathing Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, and Rand Paul's and they're saying, look, we're going to overhaul the entitlement system. We're going to put Fauci in jail. We're going to do this. We're going to do all this stuff. You give us the the lead and Trump vets all all the people who win and gets says, and just blesses them. Yes, and none of them are rhinos. None of them are... None of them are Mitt Romney, cocaine Mitch types. Like you have a far worse situation than John Boehner was dealing with in 2010 when the Tea Party walked in. They weren't big enough in 2010. 70 seats, five in the Senate. The governor of Utah puts Mitt Romney in jail and puts somebody else in. We have six. Joe Biden's impeached. Pelosi's no longer Speaker of the House. Kamala Harris will just be like thrown out for being incompetent. They'll get Paris to resign first, then they'll get, then they'll impeach Biden, and then they'll move somebody into the presidency. And that's possible. We need that. That is the best scenario we have. That is the one we need to meme into existence. Well, let's leave it there, Tom. There's a million more things, and we're going to see a lot of developments in a very short amount of time, as we have really for the past two years. I think it's just accelerating. So I'm going to link to your website and encourage people to join your Patreon. As a full disclosure, I became a member of Tom's Patreon because the content's just worth it. And he doesn't charge very much. Everybody consider that. And let's see what happens. Let's see what next week brings, what next month brings. And hopefully you'll be able to come back and update us in a few weeks. Yeah, I'll be happy to do Tom. And thank you for the invite this morning. And I hope that I tried to stay on point as much as possible and weave this into a coherent narrative. And it's hard to do because there's so many moving parts and it is what it is. Uh, yeah, follow the, a lot of people don't realize that all the contents on the blog, it doesn't originate with Zero Hedge. It doesn't originate. It, 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 and then there's, I, I, and then that's the public stuff. On the Patreon, there's so much stuff that the public's not getting. And I have not simply because I can't turn those private posts into public posts fast enough. I just don't have the time. And I would like to. I have to move them all into the public sphere and I can't. And by the time I get there, some of them are too stale to to move. If you want the first look of what's going through my head, if you respect anything that I said today, then the Patreon is really the best way to to get full, take full advantage of that. Yeah, we'll link to that. And again, Tom, thanks for spending so much time with me today. No problem, Tom. You be well. Okay, go Sabres. 
Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.